The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Martial Matters with me, Winston Marshall, at The Spectator in London. I explore taboo topics and speak to heterodox thinkers, as well as exploring free speech issues. And my guest today is one of the most censored men in the West, I believe. It's Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. Welcome, Dr. Bhattacharya. Thank you for having me, Winston. Appreciate it. So as well as being, uh, well, you're a professor at Stanford University Medical School, a physician, epidemiologist, health economist public health policy expert focusing on infectious diseases and vulnerable populations, but famously one of the co-authors of the Great Barrington Declaration in October 2020, which, as we know, well, we sort of knew already, but as was confirmed by Barry Weiss in the Twitter files, was censored by Twitter and, we believe, other big tech companies. Uh, you've, you've experienced censorship from YouTube, and I learned also by reading your latest tablet magazine article, uh, you've experienced censorship at Stanford University where you teach and work, all of which I look forward to getting into with you and also keen to talk about your experience going into Twitter post-Elon's takeover and, and that experience. But I think we should perhaps start with the work that is so controversial, which is not only the great Barrington Declaration, but the seroprevalence study of April 2020, which also got you in trouble. So maybe you can explain to our listeners what you set out in those in those two uh, sure. things. Sure. Um, so when the pandemic hit, uh, you know, I've been writing about infectious disease policy for two decades. I remembered what happened in 2009 during swine, the swine flu epidemic, that there was a in the early days of the pandemic, the World Health Organization said that the death rate was like very, very high in 2009 from the swine flu. And, and uh, what happened was that there was a whole series of studies that was done where people would measure antibodies in the population at large. The antibodies, what they tell you is that, uh, look, you've had the disease and recovered. Your body reacts to it and produces antibodies. So what you do is you just go in the population, you say, okay, how many people out of the people I sample have antibodies? Um, turned out for H1N1, the swine flu, a hundred times more people had been infected than people that had shown up as cases because it was, for most people, it was relatively mild. It just was a cold. So they didn't, they didn't go to the doctor. Doctors didn't know about it. Public health didn't know about it. And that meant the death rate was really low. And, but it took a long time before the studies were done. Initially, there was a big panic over this swine flu. So I ran a study in the early days of the pandemic for COVID. So I thought, okay, well, what if this is a very infectious disease? What if the same thing is true, that many, many people have had it and we just didn't know about it? Uh, so in, in, uh, in Santa Clara County, California, where I live, in L.A. County, I was a senior author in, in these kinds of studies. Um, what we found was it wasn't like a lot of the population. It was about like 3 or 4% of the population in April of 2020 had already had the disease. Hmm. That sounds like a small number, but that was really controversial for a couple of reasons. One is that it meant that the death rate from the disease was something like 0.2%, 99.8% survival. The World Health Organization had been saying 3% death rates. 
I mean, that's a big difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing was like there was this big age gradient. Older people were much, much more likely to die from it than younger people. Mm-hmm. That, that was clear even before our study. Um, the last really controversial thing about the results of the study was that, you know, 3% doesn't sound like a lot, but th- early April 2020, the disease had only been in the country for an hour, a month, month and a half, mm-hmm. and already 3%. Mm-hmm. There was no way to stop it. Right? That meant that, yeah. that the population was going to be infected. Mm-hmm. And the only question was, who do you protect in the meantime as the disease spreads? Mm-hmm. Why was that so controversial then? If you're a scientist, you're studying these things, it's, it's literally your job. Why would that be offensive to anyone? And what were the professional repercussions? Well, I mean, it was, it was actually quite painful. So um, it was a big media hit. I mean, like people probably don't remember now, but like back, back in April 2020, it felt like the central media story. A huge number of media outlets paid attention to it. It was controversial because it meant that public health was already doing the wrong thing, that the lockdowns that we started in March of 2020 had not worked, despite them, three or four percent of the population already had been infected. Mm-hmm. You know, two, three weeks after the lockdown, that's a bad result. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that public health had was that everyone needed to comply, and partly they used fear mongering to do it to overstate the true death rate, mm-hmm. to get people to be scared of the disease so they comply with the lockdown orders. I mean, I think that was part of some people's minds anyways. And we're coming around saying 0.2%. Well, that's, you know, 0.2% is not zero. I'd rather it be zero, but it's it's not as scary as 3%. Yeah. Has the 0.2%, has that been proved? Is that still... Yeah, so- I mean, well, there's now dozens of seroprevalence studies. Um, in some places like New York, where there's older population, there was, they, they found higher death rates. Uh-huh. In other places like in Africa, they found lower death rates, uh-huh. which was younger. That 0.2% is like roughly the median estimate. So like, you know, most of the studies find something, something very, very close to that. Right. So were there repercussions at Stanford or what, what exactly happened when you put out the, the seroprevalence? So, so I, I started getting attacked by, by the press. Like there was this BuzzFeed author that wrote a story attacking my wife because she'd like written an email to try to help people know about the stuff. I mean, she did it with my permission, but like she was, had, met, had good intentions and she created a, some scandal out of that. Uh, the, the, the founder of JetBlue gave that $5,000 to Stanford for the study. And somehow she turned it into this, like, some conflict of interest, as if I'm going to change the results of the study. The BuzzFeed journalist. Yeah, the BuzzFeed journalist. Uh-huh. Stanford then opened in, like, what they initially called an investigation, then they turned it into, like, a fact-finding mission as soon as they found we'd done nothing wrong. Of me, it was tremendously stressful. I mean, I, I've just never had anything like that happen to me before. Like, wow. I've, I've been publishing dozens, you know, I published 150 studies or whatever in my career. I'm a professor in good standing. It was really, it was very, very stressful. Friends of mine turned on me on the basis of that study. Really? Yeah. And why do you think that they turned on you? What, what was so offensive about it? I mean, I think they just very strongly believed that it was a very high mortality disease, that we'd clearly done something wrong, and they, they for whatever reason, decided I was a, a bad guy uh-huh. um, for having done the study. Okay, so fast forward a, a few months to October, and you publish a one-sheet, the Great Barrington Declaration, arguing against lockdown policy. And what happened then? So the reason we wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, so the Great Barrington Declaration is a very simple idea. You know, there's, just as I said, this thousandfold difference. Older people are much higher risk mm-hmm. of dying if they get the disease. At the same time, the lockdown strategy we've adopted have been tremendously harmful to poor people, to children, working class people. Uh, you know, closing schools, for instance, there was an April 2020, or April, May 2020 study 
by the editor of the Journal of American Pediatrics, uh, you know, a very, very well-known pediatrician. When you close schools down for a short time, you think that, okay, it's not such a big deal, but in fact, it is a big deal, mm-hmm. uh, especially poor kids who can't get replacement, but even, even every kid, you deprive them of learning, and that has lifelong implications. Like, mm-hmm. there's a big literature in education policy and health policy that, that documents how important it is for kids to go to school full-time, in person, all the time. When, when you, they don't go to school, they end up being poorer, they end up living shorter, less healthy lives. Mm-hmm. So the estimate was we robbed in the United States just from the spring closures, five and a half million life years of, from children. That was a, that was a wow. published paper in like you know spring of 2020. Who published that paper? Uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association Pediatrics, I think it's, it's this guy named Dimitri Kostakis, who's a very famous uh, pediatrician. Um, he was actually the editor of that journal. And, and then for you know the UN World Food Program was saying things like the economic harm from the lockdowns are going to cause tens of millions of people to, to go into dire poverty worldwide. You know, you say supply chain disruptions. The pointy end of that is somebody who's making, you know, $10 a day of income in Uganda or something. They're thrown out of their job because the supply chain at which they're at the bottom breaks. And now they're starving. Mm-hmm. And so like they're yelling as loud as they can. There's going to be starvation from these lockdowns. All these like people are skipping their cancer exams. So women are going to show up with late stage breast cancer that mm-hmm. should have been cured. So, so the great parent said, look, you shouldn't do these lockdowns. Mm-hmm. They're going to cause more harm than good, mm-hmm. um, especially for people who are low risk. So you have a identified high risk population, older people. You have this harmful policy that's devastating poor children, working class people. And the obvious strategy is protect vulnerable older people, mm-hmm. like move heaven and earth to protect them. And we had some, a lot of ideas that we gave in the, in the Great Branch Declaration itself and the accompanying material. But we also wanted to invite public health to enter that conversation. I mean, they, they know how the local living circumstances of the elderly in their community are. They would have a better idea than us how to protect them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then for the rest of the population, lift, lift the lockdowns. Yeah. So what was the reception then? Because in this country, the co-authors, uh, Sunitra Gupta, am I pronouncing that correctly? And Martin Kuldorf, I believe, were brought to Downing Street and had a uh, reception with the prime minister at the time, or if not the prime minister, so, someone. Uh, yeah, so Sunitra actually, she went to de- number 10, actually just, just before the Great Parenting Declaration. Right? She, okay. Yeah, so she... Um, to discuss... Well, so the declaration happened because Martin Kuldorf, who's a professor at Harvard, he uh, he just invited me and Sunetra to come to some little conference mm-hmm. where we were just going to discuss the right with the right strategy. But we'd already arrived basically at the strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I should tell you, it's the least original thing I've ever worked on. <laughs> I, it's the old. It's it's it's. I mean, it's the old pandemic point. Like it is. It is. There's nothing really novel in it. Mm-hmm. We wrote it to tell the world that there were scientists that disagreed with the lockdowns. We wanted to shatter the idea that there was a consensus when there wasn't actually a consensus. Many, many scientists I knew were unhappy with the lockdowns, uh-huh. were afraid to speak up. Many people were uncomfortable with lockdowns, but in afraid the, it, to sp- scientists afraid to speak up. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, you have people like Tony Fauci who controls you know tens of billions of dollars of funding for scientists, but and actually not just the funding. I, I guess it's like Francis Collins, the head of the NIH. The reason is they also control the social status of scientists. Yeah. Cool. You can't run your experiments. You don't get NIH funding, actually. You don't get tenure at, at big universities. Mm. So it's, it's almost like career suicide, speaking up when someone like Francis Collins or Tony Fauci says, no, no, you can't 
uh, that we, we have to do this. We have to do the lockdown. Just as a little bit of a side point, what's amongst scientists, is it a majority of scientists who are talking to each other but keeping quiet? Or is it a minority like yourself? Are you in a minority of dissenting voices or heterodox thinkers? Yeah, I mean, I I think if you asked me in October 2020, I would have said, yes, we're in a minority. There are a lot of scientists who disagree, but we're in a minority. Now I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that even in October 2020, we're in a minority. The evidence for that is that when we put the declaration out, tens of thousands of scientists signed on to it. Almost a million people have signed it. Hmm. Uh, regular people, but also, you know, like Nobel Prize winning scientists, uh, uh, infectious disease epidemiologists have signed, tens of thousands of doctors have signed it, mm-hmm. but, and at risk to their careers, like people who put their names on the front page, some of them lost their jobs. Mm-hmm. The, many of them lost opportunities to sign for grants, collaborations, teaching, they were ostracized in their, in their communities. Just it, for signing it. Just for signing it, right. For, or having this heterodox idea in the midst of this pandemic. How is the other reception then? How, how do we get from there to you? being uh, shadow banned on, on Twitter? Well, so four days after we wrote the declaration, the head of the NIH, Francis Collins, wrote an email to Tony Fauci, you know, the famous Tony Fauci, calling me, Sunetra Gupta of, of Oxford University and Martin Kulldorff of, of Harvard University, fringe epidemiologists, mm. which is kind of funny because, well, for lots of reasons, but my friends of mine made cards for me, you know, it says, you know, like I'm going to have it on my epitaph, it says fringe epidemiologists. Um, <laughs> Uh, the, the irony is that we were just proposing an idea that was the strategy used for a, you know, a century of a respiratory virus pandemic. It was really the least original idea I've ever had. Hmm. And somehow it's fringe in, this, in the midst of this pandemic. Um, he called for a devastating takedown of the premises of the declaration. And then I started getting calls from media asking me why I want to let the virus rip. Why did I want to kill old people? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And it was just an unfair reading. Like we were calling for a conversation about how best to protect old people. Mm-hmm. We're calling for a conversation just to acknowledge the harms that were being done to children, to poor people, to working class people. And instead, it was this demonization by the very head of the NIH, this head, that essentially someone with tremendous power abused it. Mm-hmm. The idea was like, you know, like when he writes, Tony Fauci says, we're fringe epidemiologists, calls for a devastating takedown. Tony Fauci then responds uh-huh. with like a Wired magazine article attacking us, slandering us. Fauci wrote it himself. No, he, I mean, I don't know for certain, but he, he starts showing up in a lot of these articles where he's like essentially slandering us, huh. c- accusing us of wanting to let the virus rip. I mean, uh, Collins shows up in articles, in effect, calling us fringe figures. They're sending a signal to other scientists to stay silent. Yeah. You know, it'd be terrible what would happen to your career if you were to speak up in this with the way these guys did. Mm. Um, and, you know, the government officials, what, what was happening at this time is that the government, the United States, and I think also the UK, is they're desperate to control the, converse, the scientific conversation about COVID online. Yeah, this actually did happen in, in the UK. And there's an article written at The Spectator by Isabel Oakshaw. She ghost wrote our health secretary at the time, Matt Hancock's, pandemic diaries. But she claims that as early as January 2020, Hancock was in contact with Twitter about affecting the algorithms. He contacted former Lib Dem Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg, who was at Facebook, apparently agreed. And when your co-authors were at Downing Street, apparently he threw all his toys out the pram. Uh, But you're absolutely right. We we, we had the same thing over here. So what you have then is government using its power to control 
the speech of private citizens. And that's a that's a direct violation of the American First Amendment, in my view. I mean, mm-hmm. like you just you, it's one thing for Twitter to decide, okay, we want to control the, the parameters of what speech is given privately, mm-hmm. right? But that's not what happened. What happened was that they took instruction from the government. Um, I'm, I'm part of a lawsuit filed by the um, uh, Louisiana and Missouri Attorney General's Office against uh, against the Biden administration. And in that lawsuit, we, we've got to depose Tony Fauci and, and a number of very high administration officials. We also got to read a lot of email interchanges between these high officials and social media companies. Through the lawsuit you've been Through the lawsuit. Because they've had to reveal them. They've had to reveal them. And what, they've, what we found is that there was direct communication where the government is telling the social media companies what to censor, in some cases, who to censor, mm-hmm. like very directly. The government was desperate to control the conversation, to create this illusion that the, that the policy they were following had a scientific consensus behind it. Mm-hmm. That, that's why we had the attack on us mm-hmm. the, after we wrote the GBD. It was because the, the effect of the GBD was to shatter the illusion that there was a consensus. Right. And just to color in the atmosphere at, at the time, I think Biden said, I think in summer 2020, or summer 2021, he said social media companies were killing people because they were allowing the spread of misinformation, which is actually in contradiction to what you've said, is that censorship is, is what kills people. And I'd like to get into that. But so was this lawsuit specific to the GBD or was it to, to do with the YouTube uh, yeah, no, this was broader, broader okay. than just the GBD. So, okay. like, so we, we published the GBD. The Google in many countries, actually, if you typed the great brand, like we published it online, right? So, and then we got like dozens of people sending us translations of the this one-page document mm-hmm. into their language. But if you went and to Google in some other countries, you typed... Great Barrington Declaration and whatever, what you'd find is that the search results were like incredibly biased. The uh, GBD main page was on page three or whatever of the Google search Mm. and all these hit pieces were above us. Mm. And uh, Facebook, we had a little Facebook page. Facebook actually took it down for a week without telling us, giving us any reason why. Really? You know, and and, uh, it was really clear that social media worked to try to suppress knowledge of the GBD. Mm -hmm. So... You've now been into Twitter. Elon Musk invited you in because uh, and, and Barry Weiss singled you out on, on, as an example on her Twitter files back in December of someone explicitly, uh, what's the term? It's uh, Blacklisted. Black, trend blacklisted. Trend blacklisted. So they stopped your tweet from being able to trend. What did you discover at Twitter? Uh, the, the, well, first I got to talk with some of the Twitter engineers. I discovered that... So I joined Twitter in August of 2021 for various reasons. I had never been on, on Twitter before. I was like, I figured writing scientific papers is the way you move people, but uh, I, I guess Twitter is the way you move people. Um, anyways, I... like I, I, I trouble too. I, yeah, a little bit. Um, I signed on with the idea of reaching people I hadn't reached before, right? To tell people what my view of, the, of COVID science is, my view of COVID policy is. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a lot of followers almost immediately. Uh, for scientists, it was a, a ridiculous number of followers, it seemed to me. But I'd been in, in on like uh, some TV shows before, so maybe that's why people heard of me. Mm-hmm. But what I noticed was that I would send a tweet and only my followers would see it. It was very rare that I would get people outside of my, you know, sort of the one degree following move me for me that would see it. Mm-hmm. 
Um, my tweets would never go viral in the way that, uh, that, that, that you might be expected for someone who's like trying to tweak the, I mean, I was very careful on Twitter. I didn't, I, I thought I knew what the bounds of acceptable, I, I suspected that there was censorship going on. Mm-hmm. So I knew what the bounds of acceptable conversation were. Like I, I didn't say like the, the vaccine causes you to be magnetic or, some, or something silly. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but I did say is that the, the, these lockdowns were causing all these harms and I was linking to scientific papers to show the harms, right? I was advocating for the Great Barrington Declaration. It didn't reach the followers outside of the ones I had. It mm-hmm. didn't, because the trend blacklist, it turns out, was placed on the very day I joined Twitter. Mm. Wow. Total coincidence. <laughs> we don't know. Like they just, well, I mean, like, why would Twitter put me on a trends blacklist? I mean, they get a benefit from having a lot of engagement. I'm generating a lot of engagement for them yeah. with these, what looked like controversial ideas, although they were like, you know, vanilla ideas yeah. actually, but whatever, seemed controversial at the time. They look vanilla now. Yeah. So I don't think it was ever in Twitter's interest to suppress it. They were doing it on the behest of the government. Like, why would they put me on a blacklist on the first day I joined? Is this your thinking of what you've learned now? Because That's what I learned now, yeah. So they, you don't think you would have been censored if they hadn't had government influence? Yeah, I think if there was no government influence, they would have left me. I mean, you know, I'm a Stanford professor. They, there's, there's just no way by themselves they would have decided that I was so outside the bounds that I needed to be put on a blacklist. It's not inconceivable because there are other examples where they were acting. If you look at how they took down Trump from Twitter, there wasn't government no, well, I think there might have been, but I think there was there was there government were, pressure. There, there was too, government yeah. pressure there, but I think that they were themselves considered themselves activists and 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 were acting not necessarily with government. To, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think uh, you know, like a lot of Silicon Valley is controlled with from the left, like their polit- left political views. Um, but I think even when the left, there's this mix of there's still a, a, a reverence for free speech. I, I don't think, of course, there's some authoritarian left that wants to control speech and thinks some speech is so dangerous it shouldn't happen. But there's still a lot of big tech was founded by people who had very strong ideological commitments to free speech. Mm-hmm. And there's still enough of that left over that I just don't, I, it's, I find it hard to believe, I mean, I, I could be proven wrong, but like I, I find it hard to believe that they'd move so far as to say, we want to suppress all speech. Mm-hmm. Right, some speech is dangerous, you know, like physical threats to people, obviously you want to suppress, that, that, that's reasonable to suppress. But like, a scientist talking about his results or, or, or scientific results on the central scientific policy question of the day. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just I find it hard to believe that they on their own would decide to suppress that, especially since I wasn't putting conspiracy theories out. I was, I was not saying the vaccine makes you magnetic or there's microchips. In it. Well, I'm not saying anything ridiculous. I'm just mm-hmm. saying Here's the harms the lockdown caused. I, I, actually, I did write that the vaccine doesn't stop disease transmission. Mm-hmm. Um, when it became abundantly clear from the scientific data, I think it was like in summer of 2021 where I started writing about that because mm-hmm. it was an important topic, but I was reflecting what the scientific literature was saying. Did you get in trouble for that? No. No. I, well, I was, I was on the continual blacklist. So, continual, I be, right, okay. so you go to San Francisco, into the Twitter offices. This is post-must takeover. And can you talk me through that experience? That was surreal. So like it's, I think he laid off, I mean, thousands and thousands of workers, but when he first signed on board, the headquarters itself is like this palatial estate, in fact, like a five-star hotel or something. Hmm. It's empty. Like there's nobody in it. There's this huge dining area. No one's in there. Downtown San Francisco. Yeah. Downtown San Francisco. And, um, I went there on a Saturday afternoon or Sunday afternoon mm-hmm. and there was a few engineers like sitting there it was like it felt like a newsroom or or like like there was just a buzz of like they're trying to 
keep the thing going. Mm-hmm. Elon Musk is in a conference room huddled with other engineers. They're talking about, I don't know what they're talking about, some engineering thing about how to keep Twitter running. And then uh, he meets with me for an hour. Mm-hmm. It was surreal. It was really interesting because I, wa- I was really curious to find out why is he doing this? Like I, I live just south of San Francisco. So like I'm driving up for an hour. It's about, about a you know, 45 minute drive up. And that whole drive, I'm thinking, okay, it cost $44 billion to come to this, do, yeah. do this little drive. Um, the so, question is why? Why, yeah, do you why do it? is he doing it? I think he honestly wants free speech. Mm-hmm. You know, for him, a society that doesn't have free speech can't, science, engineering advances can't thrive. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, I mean, I think he views it as a civic obligation. That's why you know, I asked him, like, you know, you're revealing these kinds of things. I mean, I'm not going to sue Twitter because I'm, I'm really pleased with this openness and transparency they have. But he's opening himself up to Twitter 1.0 did, did a lot of bad things. They suppressed people. They shouldn't have suppressed them. They leaving them, themselves open to like all the lawsuits and things. And he's like, yeah, I know that. Um, but it's worth it. It's worth mm. it for free speech. Oh, because he could be sued by what happened at Twitter. Yeah, because he is—he's now the owner, so right. he's responsible for what they did. Right, I see. So, what else did you learn in that hour about uh, Elon? Well, I, th- I mean, he's—he's he's very clearly, you know, very much against lockdowns. Like he, and he's—I think he's been against lockdowns from the beginning. So, he like, did he know about you from the Great Barrington Declaration? He'd never heard of us before. He'd had, never heard. He'd of never you. heard of the Great Barrington Declaration before. Okay. Before. I, mean, so, I mean, I think he since has heard, but like, yeah, he hadn't heard it at the time. So how, how did he know to invite you? Because Barry Weiss. Okay. So she, I've known her for a couple of years. She allowed me to write stories for her um, thing called the Free Press now, yeah. which was just a fantastic outlet. Uh, when Elon invited her to come report on the Twitter files, she wanted to write about prominent scientists that were censored. Mm-hmm. So she searched for me and... You know, my name came up as a Twitter blacklist. She put me as like one of the the only scientists that was like in, in her in her list that she'd had that was mm-hmm. uh, that was censored. And so that's how I think Elon must have learned about me. I see. So, did you have any insight about the machinations of Twitter and, and is it bots that were doing the censoring? Was it individuals? What insight did you get there? It's a, it's a mix, right? So I think the most of the censoring is done by AI. Right. So like someone sends in a list of words, trigger words or something, you know, mm-hmm. 5G or something. And now now the AI will say, OK, this is something to, to flag uh-huh. or, or censor automatically. But there are a, a ton of requests from media companies to censor. You can see that in the database that they have. Media um, companies. Yeah. People work for media companies. There was like, you know, reporters wanting to sense things censored. Reporters or, wanting to suppress speech. Yeah. What what example? Do you remember I, some examples? I I mean, the, I don't want to bring the eye of Sauron on me, so I'm not going to like name names, but like it's just yeah, these notes from saying, okay, this crosses the line, this that that crosses the line, you should suppress this. I didn't see anything directly from governments in my in my time at Twitter, but other people, other you know reporters who've actually gone there and, and mm-hmm. done this, have found notes from government officials. Yeah about who to censor and what to censor. Oh, we know that now. It, was, uh, it wasn't just the Biden administration, the Trump administration as well, and, and the DNC and various governmental groups, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and that was revealed by Taibbi and, and Barry Weiss in, in the Twitter files. Um, so what was the story with YouTube and DeSantis? Because you were also censored there, am I right? Yeah, so I still can't wrap my mind around this. So, so um, in March of 2021, Governor DeSantis invited me to a policy roundtable. 
And the question, one of the questions, there were several questions, like one on whether there should be vaccine mandates or, or not. Absolutely not. Um, but one of the questions that came up where the governor asked me directly was, is there any evidence that masking children has any effect on disease spread? I knew he was going to ask me this because he'd given me, prepped me out a little bit with the list of questions. So I had looked up the literature. There are no randomized studies documenting any benefit at all to masking children. Mm. None. Still, to this day. So that's what I said. I said, look, there's no high-quality scientific evidence suggesting that, that, that we do that. And at the time, all these, like in the United States especially, there was like a craze of masking children, as young as two years old. Um, you know, toddlers. And I, I was just reflecting what the scientific evidence was saying, right? So I, and it's a sitting governor of a state asking his science advisors the scientific basis for policy decisions that he's about to make. Mm-hmm. So there was a, a TV channel that was like filming this event. I mean, it wasn't all that exciting. It's just scientists talking to a governor, right? But, but on the other hand, it's like it's kind of a good government thing. You can see what your governor, I'm from California, it wasn't my governor, but his but people afford could see what the governor, what advice the governor was getting directly. It's actually, that's exactly what we want to see Absolutely. as far as transparency in government. Um, this TV station put the, the video on YouTube. Well, the next day, then they censored it. They dropped this video. YouTube or the TV channel? YouTube censored it um, because of what I said. Because I said that there's no benefit, there's no scientific evidence that masking children has any benefit. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's mind-blowing. And I, I don't know directly it was at the request of the government, but it might have been. We might have tripped a keyword mm-hmm. or something, but you just, you can't have that. You can't actually have a communication medium that's aimed at public, furthering public discourse that censors the functionings of government, mm-hmm. Transparency, like transparent government, even if you disagreed with me, Mm -hmm. uh, although you'd have to then disagree with the scientific literature, but whatever, even if you disagreed with me, uh, you you should get to hear what I'm saying to the governor, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. All the more shocking that this is a country where freedom of speech is in the Bill of Rights. It's right (laughs) there. You'd have thought of in America of all places that this this couldn't happen. Now, I want to go into the greater implications of what censorship, as as I've heard you say censorship kills. But before doing that, I think... I want to understand what happened at Stanford University. And you describe being intimidated and uh, silenced there in a recent Tablet Magazine article. Would you mind? Um... Yeah, that, was, that was really painful to write, Winston. I mean, it was really hard to write. Um, so Stanford's my home. Like, I've been at Stanford for 36 years. If you asked me three years ago, is there any problem with academic freedom, I would have told you absolutely not. Like, I, I've given dozens and dozens of seminars, uh, sometimes with very controversial ideas. It's... It's science, right? You're going to say things that people disagree with. You resolve it by thinking of experiments or getting new data. It's fine to disagree in science, right? During the pandemic, Stanford did not organize a single seminar where people that were opposed to the lockdowns, and there were very prominent people at Stanford opposed to lockdowns, not just like people like John Ioannidis, one of the most highly cited scientists in the world, Mm -hmm. a Nobel Prize winner, Mike Levitt. Scott Atlas, who was the uh, advisor to President Trump on COVID policy. I had some very prominent people who opposed the lockdowns. None of us were invited to give a seminar hmm. on campus talking about our views. The, the leadership never organized a debate between us and people who disagreed with us on mm-hmm. campus. They could have. And what happened on campus was that essentially the views, especially Scott, when he went to go advise Trump, 
Now all of a sudden Scott was the was the you know devil incarnate, mm-hmm. right? Just for the sin of advising a president on 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 COVID policy, mm-hmm. and on campus those the views were seen as like so far outside the bounds you couldn't even bring them up, right? That's why that's why they didn't invite us for a seminar. Mm-hmm. After I advised uh, Governor DeSantis in that video that got taken down about about um, a, a couple of months after that there was a big wave of cases in Florida. Every place on earth has experienced waves of cases. It's just Unfortunately, that's the way the nature of this disease. Mm-hmm. There was a, a poster campaign where the, there was a picture of me next to the number of deaths in Florida, essentially accusing me of killing people in Florida. And it, they put it on kiosks all over campus, including a coffee shop that, that, uh, on campus that, that, that I'm known to go to. I'm reminded what you said was that masks didn't prevent this, the spread of infectious of COVID amongst children. Yes. And they made the, the jump then to assume that you were somehow responsible for the jump in cases in Florida. In Florida, yeah. So that's pretty intimidating. Those flies are sort of around campus. Yeah, at the time, like for almost for two years, from 2020 to 2021, I was getting death threats constantly. And I was getting... From who? Just random people. Whenever I'd appear on TV, I'd get death threats, racist attacks. It was, it was just... I mean, it was just part of the background noise. Mm. I mostly ignored it. But then when the posters came up on campus, and a, fr- a friend of mine tr- sent me a picture of it right next to the coffee house I would go to, it, was like, it felt personal. Like somebody was directly attacking me yeah, in the place in my home. Yeah. And I, I felt physically afraid to go on campus mm-hmm. for a couple of days. I'm like, after, after a couple of days, I'm like, okay, I'm, whatever happens, happens. I'm just going to go. I called uh, the department chair. I told him, like, this, I, don't, I don't feel safe going on campus. What can you do? You, you, you sent me to some advisor who told me to reduce my online presence. You know, I'm like in the middle of this massive worldwide scientific war I'm not going to reduce my online presence. I mean, just it's part of like I have to communicate with the public. I be quiet. Yeah, that's the that's what you need to do. Yeah, sorry, go on. I mean, that's exactly how I read yeah. it. So it just, it just felt like I was first by not organizing seminars, they essentially delegitimized my view mm-hmm. on campus. They created an atmosphere where this kind of demonization was. Were there was many reasonable. other seminars going on? Yeah, okay. there were other, other seminars going. Lots of hours, on Zoom, but yeah, they were on, right, okay. going on. Uh, there's something called grand rounds in the, in the medical school. Once a week, you get one very prominent person get who's invited to re- report on their research or, or some ideas that they have to the whole of the medical school. You know, over the pandemic, there have been 150 some grand rounds. And you'd have thought, seeing as they have the one of the co-authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, well, Johnny and Edie's, or I mean, they could, they should have invited one of us, mm. not one. Mm-hmm. So then your 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 voice is being silenced. Then although you're not actually having anything apart from sort of being told to be quiet is the best way to deal with the flies. Were there any other ways in which you were sort of silenced at, at uh, Stanford? It was, I mean, like during the, that, that Santa Clara study, there was an allegation that, uh, so what happened was like the, the, the study was funded by a very large number of, of like anonymous donors or, or small dollar donors. Hmm. The way that normally works, I mean, I'd never got all my funding before that had come from the National Institute of Health. I never experienced this kind of thing. But like we announced that we were doing the study and a lot of people wanted the study to happen. Mm-hmm. And so they gave a little bit of money to Stanford. Mm-hmm. So the JetBlue founder, you know, for this airline founder, gave $5,000 to Stanford for the study. Mm-hmm. There was a BuzzFeed article claiming that somehow that money had influenced my reporting or, the, or that biased the study was, I, I have no idea how, why, what direction or what, mm-hmm. I, it just it makes no sense mm-hmm. for $5,000. I mean, I didn't even see the money, it went to Stanford. Mm-hmm. But Stanford opened an investigation of me 
But they, they very quickly turned it into like a fact-finding thing. They found nothing wrong because I hadn't done anything. Wrong. It was just, just it was tremendously stressful. I started getting like, you know, like friends of mine, pre, I guess former friends of mine, started telling me like, you know, they, they, they were going to defriend me on Facebook. It was that, that was this most silly childish so thing, petty. right? And then like I heard there were a hundred, like that someone was circulating a petition, and the chair of epidemiology circulated uh, helped circulate the petition. It didn't quote me directly, but it quoted what I said during that DeSantis interview, saying that there's no high-quality evidence, right, for child masking. Uh, and, and it said, this is a dangerous opinion. It asked the president of the university to censor people who, who have this opinion. Make wow. clear this is, I mean, and, and 100 of my uh, friends signed it. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, I, I, I mean, some, some of them I didn't know, but met, some of my friends, friends signed the thing. I mean, so it was, well, I have to be forgiving, you know, Winston. I, 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 I'm, I'm happy to man. forgive them. <laughs> um, but... Uh, it was painful, right? It was just, it was like, I felt the sense of like, I'm being excommunicated from the university. You know, I've been there for 36 years. I've been teaching for 20 years. I've written papers with some of these folks. Mm. Um, it was just, it was, it was just, it was painful. I can only imagine. So zooming out then to this idea that, as I quoted Biden earlier, he was saying that social media companies were killing people by not stopping the spread of misinformation. And you've said that actually censorship kills. For anyone who, who believes that censorship was the right thing to do in that scenario, what is your argument? And do you think that you can say, you can back that up scientifically uh, yeah, after I, COVID that actually censorship does kill? I mean, it's hard to answer. It's hard to like make a counterfactual and be entirely persuasive because you have to like think what the world might have been like without it. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I don't think there's... A, I don't think if you think about it, there's a lot of controversy about this. Like, so, so the, uh, let's say take the argument at its face about why censorship would be good, right? So some ideas spread that are incorrect. And sometimes people act on those ideas in ways that lead to harm to them and maybe to others, mm-hmm. right? So take some of the worst of these ideas, right? So like something President Trump said about, I don't think he exactly said this, but like, uh, some people misinterpret like interpreters like saying bleach would kill the thing, and like maybe maybe they they drink bleach, mm-hmm. right? That that's a that's a harm of not censoring that idea, right? He didn't quite say that, but yes, yes. Yeah, so, so like, like yeah. someone could misinterpret it that way, right? Yeah, yeah, so, right. Um, that that would be a harm of it. If if you're honest, you say okay, I accept that that might be a harm. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> uh, but the counter argument is that if you have a trustworthy public health authority mm-hmm. that says no, no, don't drink bleach. Mm-hmm. Why you have to say that to like thinking human beings? I have no idea. But like, anyways, like that, that you say that, right? Yeah. And people will believe it mm-hmm. because the public health authority is saying is is, is trustworthy, mm-hmm. right? The vaccines doesn't make you magnetic. It, there's not there's no five G chips in it, right? Mm-hmm. A trustworthy public health authority says that, and people believe it, and so you can counter the misinformation with trustworthy information from trustworthy sources. Mm-hmm. With censorship, what happens? is that it breeds distrust in the authorities that are censoring. Mm-hmm. So when the authorities get something really substantively wrong, like so for instance, the authorities said things like, if you are vaccinated, you will not get the disease and you will not spread the disease. Well, people saw from their own personal experience that wasn't true, yeah. right? I got the vaccine, two doses, mm-hmm. and then four months later, I got COVID. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not the only one. Yeah, I mean, same with me. So now, all of a sudden, the entities that are doing the censoring are no longer trustworthy. Mm-hmm. And now all of these like 
not so smart ideas, they're not gone. They're just gone underground. Mm-hmm. And no one trusts the authorities to, to counter them. Mm-hmm. And then, then there's another argument, which is that um, when you have censorship and the, the authorities get it wrong, mm-hmm. it takes longer to counter them. Right? So we essentially created with these vaccine mandates a two-class society. We like undermine trust in vaccines. What if they had allowed voices to, to very early on to say, well, look, this vaccine doesn't stop transmission. Didn't censor that idea. It's a fact, right? Or that if you've had COVID and recovered, you actually have fairly good protection against COVID, mm-hmm. against reinfection, and, uh, and certainly against severe disease on reinfection. Mm-hmm. So those were facts that the public health authorities essentially denied. Mm-hmm. I'd have thought that you might have linked this back to the Great Barrington Declaration because you're arguing the damage that lockdowns did and that that, that might suit your argument. I, I mean, I, I absolutely think that, that we would have won that argument much earlier had there not been censorship, mm-hmm. right? So I still talk to people who don't have never heard of the Great Barrington Declaration, mm-hmm. didn't, still don't know that there was a scientific insurgency, I guess, against the lockdown idea. Mm-hmm. So I agree with you and say it's absolutely right. That, that, I think that we lost that argument. We lost the policy argument in October 2020 mm-hmm. through foul means. Do you feel that now, looking back two years on, that you still believe you were correct? Is there any sort of evidence that you can proffer to suggest that you were correct? So first, the, the, the fact of lockdown harms, I mean, everyone's experienced them, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, like in July of 2020, the CDC did a study that one in four young Americans had seriously considered suicide, right? So the, 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 the anxiety and depression that comes from... What's the normal rate? Like three, four percent. Wow. Okay. So yeah. that's a huge jump. It was a it was an enormous jump, right? So like, you know, we're social creatures. We need company. We need to be in physical presence of others. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, no matter how misanthropic you are, you need that. Yeah. I mean, even you know, introverted scientists like me will will need to like talk to people, right? So it's just it's just the way it goes. So everyone's felt that lockdown home probably directly. Mm-hmm. The idea of like schooling, well. Kids who were forced out of school, mainly poor kids, for, for very extended periods of time, they have tremendous learning loss measured, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we created this generational inequality that didn't exist, that, that existed before, but was exacerbated through, through, this, through these lockdown measures on, on kids. In poor countries, in Uganda, for instance, four and a half million kids never came back to school after two years of closed school. Wow. A lost generation. Many of them, like little girls, were sold into sexual slavery hmm. because their parents couldn't afford to feed them. They, they would often get food to, from their school. The lockdown harms are, you know, like the economic malaise we're going through now, it's directly related to the economic policies we adopted, the spending, the printing of money, all of that, hmm. the devastation of small businesses that happened during the lockdowns mm-hmm. as a result of the lockdowns. Those lockdown harms are undeniable, right? I think everyone agrees. That, that was one of the main planks of the Great Parenting Declaration, right? Hmm. The idea that lockdowns wouldn't protect people, what fraction of the, Amer- of the American population or the, or the UK population has had COVID? Like nearly everybody has had COVID. Mm-hmm. How, what did the lockdowns actually accomplish other than maybe delay? Mm-hmm. And then in terms of like, did they protect against deaths from COVID? Well, you can look at the counterexample of Sweden. Sweden didn't lockdown. They had voluntary measures. They had guidance for, you know, they told people, they reasoned with people like adults and said, look, here's who's high risk. You know, you might want to be careful when the disease is spreading. Don't go out so much. 
deliver food to your neighbor if they're older. So, I mean, things like that, like they, they created a community that was responding to try to like work together rather than these like mandates and force. And they, their all-cause excess deaths are lower than basically almost every other country in Europe, like maybe other than Norway. Do you have a sense of injustice about what happened, the, the censorship of your work, considering how, it's, how it played out? I mean, I, I have a sense of sadness. Though. Like, I, it's not so much me. I mean, like, I just, I feel, I, I feel like the scientific community let regular people down, mm-hmm. right? We didn't allow our normal processes to play through. We would have won that argument, for instance, if we, if the normal scientific processes, we would have won the anti-lockdown argument. We would have won the focus protection argument. And instead, you had scientific bureaucrats abusing their position mm-hmm. for hubris. I mean, they thought they were right, mm-hmm. and they weren't. Wow. And the people who paid the price, I mean, I, for me, it's like, it's okay, yeah, I paid some price with my, you know, I lost a bunch of friends, but like also made a tremendous number of friends and contacts. Yeah. I mean, in many ways, scientifically, it's been the most exhilarating time of my career. Mm-hmm. But the kids that lost their opportunities for schooling, the people who lost their, their small businesses, the, their life savings, the young adults who, who were like deeply depressed and isolated, the men and women who have late stage cancer now that should have been picked up early, all these people that were damaged by these policies. I mean, I feel some sense of responsibility over this because mm-hmm. we should have spoken for them. I mean, we tried to speak for them and we did, they weren't heard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, now uh, the world has moved on, but uh, I wonder as an epidemiologist, whether you could, I'd love to know your opinion on a couple of things that have now come up in the news. For example, the CDC are, exploring a link between uh, a Pfizer booster and strokes in uh, elder people. And in Britain as well, there's a report of 30,000 excess deaths in the time March 2020 to August 2022. Now, we don't know whether that's because of the vaccines, because of COVID itself, because of NHS problems and, and ambulance shortages. And, uh, uh, but I, I wondered if you had an opinion as the efficacy of the vaccinations and any damage they might be, uh, you know. Uh, I think it's. I think it's likely that for older people, because they have such a high rate of death, I think the vaccines do reduce the rate of death from COVID. And so, for older people, it's likely that they save lives. It's almost certain that they save lives. Mm-hmm. Um, for younger people, it's a much closer question. I mean, it, it may not have. I think for young men, it's pretty well established that the vaccines, especially the mRNA vaccines, cause myocarditis, which can kill you. Mm-hmm. Like it's not. It's, it's not something you don't want. You, you don't necessarily want if you can avoid it. Um, and the rates is there, are like, is there evidence of that? Is, there's is absolutely strong? evidence of that. So like I think it's something on the order of one in three thousand, one in two thousand. Okay. You could convince me it's lower than that, but not not much lower. So, but what that means is that for young men, the risk benefit calculation is like much closer to why do it. I don't believe that the vaccines have killed a very large number of people. I, I just, I, I just the evidence that I've looked at doesn't coincide with that. But I do think that the vaccine should have just been targeted at older people. Mm-hmm. That's whom it benefited the most. For younger people, maybe the, the recommendation should have been go talk to your doctor. If you have high risk conditions that make, make it so that if you get COVID, it'll be bad for you, then get the vaccines. Otherwise, maybe not. But we've described the scientific community as being so sort of captured in an ideology. Was, do you have any sense that doctors might have been the same, medicine might be the same, or is, was there sort of more sensibility, or was more sense rather in, in, in yeah, that? No, there, there, was, there was tremendous pressure on doctors to toe the line mm-hmm. on the vaccines, more pressure than I've ever seen 
put on the medical professionals to, to say exactly what public health wanted them to say. Mm-hmm. So that, that would have been difficult. It would have required a different public health response. Mm-hmm. It would have required a public health response where doctors were treated as partners mm-hmm. rather than subjects. Mm-hmm. So what you needed was a nuanced response that took into account patients' actual condition. Like each, each every person is different from each other. Mm-hmm. What may be right for you to take may be wrong for me to take, or vice versa. You're, you're a young man. It's probably much less important for you to have taken the vaccine than it was for me to take it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and for, when my 80-year-old mom, much more important for her to take it. Mm-hmm. I, I think that that kind of idea, public health could have just said that. Mm-hmm. Instead, it was there was this pressure that everyone had to be vaccinated mm-hmm. with the false premise that if everyone's vaccinated, the disease will go away. Mm-hmm. Well, the vaccine doesn't stop you from getting disease. It means it can't get rid of the disease with it. Therefore, it's not so important that literally everyone is vaccinated in terms of like the herd immunity idea. Mm-hmm. Um, public health just made a mistake there, like a, an enormous mistake. And it took them for, it's, they still haven't corrected it. Mm. Thinking more sort of positively for the future now, have things calmed at, at Stanford? And do you feel that now that we're past COVID somewhat, that you are freer now with your, what you're able to say and given also that we've got this revolution happening at Twitter and perhaps in tech, online you'll be freer or is there still a, a sort of legacy from that period where there are circumstances where you cannot speak freely? I mean, at Stanford, there still hasn't been an acknowledgement by the leadership that they essentially violated the mission of the place. Mm-hmm. The mission of the place is, you know, the motto is like, let the winds of freedom blow. Mm. The winds of freedom didn't blow for three years. I, I, I do think it's opening up some. I still haven't been invited to give a seminar with uh, my uh, people who were in favor of the lockdowns. Like they still have not organized that kind of seminar as yet. But there was a conference of, on academic freedom at Stanford where I got to tell my story. It's starting to thaw, but there needs to be some acknowledgement by current leadership. I actually think there needs to be change in leadership to a set of people who are leaders who actually are committed to the mission mm-hmm. of the university, which is to free expression of ideas in pursuit of knowledge. How can there even be pursuit of knowledge? Like, how can you do your experimentation if you're not able to talk you about can. them? You, so what's right. the atmosphere then? It's, it's sort of I, insane. I think a lot of people at Stanford just want to move on, pretend like the last three years didn't happen. Uh-huh. Um, I don't think that's healthy. I think that we need to do an honest conversation about what happened and make sure it never happens again. Like we have to recommitment to our, we're talking about Stanford because it's my home, but I, but I think it's just, it's a broader conversation for our, our Western democracies. Yeah. And the universities. The universities particularly. The audit like, of what happened yeah. over the last three years, yeah. For me personally, 2022 and 2023, the death threat stopped. It moved a lot more, like the policy moved in the, in the direction of the Great Barrington Declaration. Yeah. Like in, yeah, in the UK, you had what, like Freedom Day in like July, August of 2021 or something. Yeah, I'm not sure how many people celebrate that. But well, yeah. it's a way to go, whatever. But, but, but <laughs> I mean, the point is that like the idea that we have to suppress the virus at all costs, that essentially is dead now in most places. Even China has gotten rid of that idea, right? Um, and Happened it, rather more violently over there. Yeah, well, I mean, they, they went for this crazy zero COVID idea. It was hopeless and at great cost to their society. For what? This is a virus that eventually is going to spread everywhere. If you're going to devote resources to protecting it, you should just devote it to protecting the most vulnerable people. Mm-hmm. And once we had the vaccine, I mean, that's easy, right? What you use, you, the va- you vaccinate older people who are high risk. Mm-hmm. 
the Freedom Day policy actually made them actually quite a bit of sense. Like the idea was like, okay, UK had vaccinated its older population, lift the lockdowns because the older population is now protected by dint of the vaccines. The, the US, we just, I mean, the blue states, we kept going. I'm not entirely sure that's what happened in the UK. And, and this, I'll, I'll reference back to the article by um, Oakshot about uh, Hancock, because she describes him as having made so many orders of vaccines that once he had finished with the elder people, he then wanted, went on a mission to vaccine everyone else. And so perhaps he kind of got, went on an ideological yeah. uh, routing or something. But... Uh, yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, there was, I was I mean, the pressure in the U.S. was even more, right? So, like, vaccinate kids as young as, like, six months old. Mm-hmm. Why? I don't know. I mean, they don't really don't really need it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, six-month-olds don't really die at very high rates. From, like, the vanishingly few six-month-olds died of COVID. So, I don't know the motive exactly. But I will say it was, epidemiologically, it was the wrong thing to do. Like, there was no reason to pressure young people to get vaccinated. And the idea was, like, if you don't get vaccinated, you're going to put me in danger, but that was not true, yeah. right? If you'd had COVID before and recovered, actually, you were better protected against getting disease and spreading it than it's an, a vaccinated individual who never had COVID before. Mm-hmm. The vaccine then also doesn't stop you from getting COVID. Mm-hmm. We created this two-class society for nothing. Mm-hmm. Public health did that. Mm-hmm. And the pressure to vaccinate was tremendous, right? I mean, you're absolutely right to, to correct me. Like the Hancock bed definitely did that in the UK. Yeah. But it eased up faster than in California, for instance. There's still, like, there's still, like, in New York State, a couple of days ago, the governor of New York was asked, well, why don't you hire back the nurses that you fired during the pandemic who were unvaccinated? Mm. You're short, there's a shortage of nurses in, in hospitals. You, why not bring them back? Mm-hmm. And she still said yesterday that these nurses put their patients at risk. Mm. Like, we, we, we created an underclass of unvaccinated people. Hmm. Wow, and you still, and so that still exists. I think I think it still exists to some extent. In the U. I mean, it's, start, it's starting to lift, but um, mm-hmm. it's it's still the echoes of that are going to go on for a long time. There are a lot of people who no longer trust any vaccines mm-hmm. because they feel discriminated against by public health, mm-hmm. who got the facts about this vaccine wrong. Yeah. Do you still trust them? Do you? How, have you Do I trust public mind? health? Yeah. <laughs> it, I mean, it's it's one sense. It's like. I'm a scientist. I'm supposed to be skeptical. Mm-hmm. I think public health, the norms are different, right? So like public health is not just doing science. They're also like communicating science and the practical applications of the science to the population at large. Mm-hmm. So there is an element of trust and faith that they have to have. Mm-hmm. My view is that the best way to garner that trust and maintain it is by telling the truth 100% of the time, even when it's inconvenient. Mm-hmm. When you get it wrong, transparently admitting that you got it wrong, treating mm. the population like adults. Mm. The public health embraced this idea of a noble lie, mm. right? If I, I lie to you about the efficacy of masks, why? Because otherwise you won't wear them. Mm. I lie to you about whether the vaccine stopped transmission or, or whether if, if you're COVID recovered, if you have any immunity, why? Because you might then otherwise not get the vaccine. Yeah. Those lies undermine trust, yeah. reasonably undermine trust. And if you think you're fighting some great evil, the noble lie is, is, is always justified. Yeah. yeah, until like no one believes you. Yeah. I mean, it's not no one believes public health. A large fraction of the population is like, who are these people? Why do they think they know it all when they've been wrong so many times? Mm. Well, a world in which we tell the truth 100% of the time, I think is one 
I uh, hope will come into being. <laughs> okay, 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 fine. Like, but for public health, like professionally, well, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just no, no, I wasn't actually joking. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're. I mean, you're right. I mean, that's that is that is exactly the right norm. Yeah, I and mean, we just utterly failed at that. Mm. I'll, I'll still tell my kids when, well, my grandkids when I eventually have them that Santa Claus exists. But that's that's another. <laughs> well, on that note. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, thank you very much for your time. I'm sure listeners and watchers will have found that fascinating. Thank you too.